episode 3369 of the survival podcast and I, I i just caught Streamyard doing something that i guess they think is helpful but it's not um i always set my streams up at 720p i figure with the quality of camera and lighting that we have here and what have you uh that's plenty anything better is just not even really going to matter uh and you set that at the individual stream level and Apparently, there's another place you can set it, like a master level up in the top of the back office. And I just noticed that they were setting it to 720. I'm sorry, 1080. And that's probably why we've had some jerky moments recently and what have you. Some level of bottleneck on the uh, Super HQ HD going up. Anyway, not what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk about things getting jacked up today. Like, how jacked up is our economy? Now, look, I'm sure... All of you have heard somebody say, especially boomer dads, right? It's not the heat, it's the humidity that gets you. Have you ever stopped and thought how ridiculous that statement is in reality? Because it doesn't matter. When you're really hot and on the verge of heat stroke and dying and having a cardiac arrest because of the heat, do you care which one it is? And does it really matter? And isn't there a point where if one of them's high enough, it stops mattering if the other one's high at all? In other words, I'll, I'll grant you that when it's 95 degrees with a really high humidity, it feels kind of like a lower humidity than 105, but both of them suck. And if we go high enough in humidity, I'm sorry, high enough in temperature, sooner or later humidity comes down. It's just the way that it works because the heat itself starts burning off the moisture, and there's like a counteraction there. Have you ever thought about how that might provide you an analogy into what you're looking at and our economy right now. Well, here's what I'm talking about. Right now, we have twin enemies. Just like heat and humidity both suck and can both kill you, we have inflation, in other words, rising prices, and we have interest rates, in, in other words, a rising cost to borrow money. And the Fed is attempting to use this analogy, even though they don't know it, in raising rates is, is like when a temperature goes up high enough, you start to burn off humidity. It's exactly what they're trying to do. If we push interest rates high enough, people will stop buying shit. And if people stop buying shit, the economy will retract and we will rein in inflation. That's the theory. The practice is, well, since most of what people are buying our needs versus luxuries right now, it doesn't really matter how high the price is or how high the cost is. People are going to do whatever they have to to buy the things that they need. We have another trap in this right now in that we have a huge segment of the society that's not working. And they have figured out one way or another by hook, crook, disability, income, whatever it is, how not to work, doubling up, tripling up, whatever it is. They figured out how not to work or how to work very part-time or have little side gigs that pay little bits of money here and there, and they get by. They're not looking for jobs. On the other hand, the unemployment rate is really low because those people are out of the market and not counted. But the other side of it is all the people that have jobs have not figured out how to exist without income, and they have to keep their jobs no matter how shitty they are. 
And you have to look at this all and go, this is like that thing used to do talent shows back in the eighties on TV and shit, you know, like America's got talent retro. And you have a guy come out, he starts putting plates on a thing and spinning plates and you'd see how many plates he could get going. And sooner or later, one of the plates starts wobbling. He can't get back to it. All the plates come down. Where's this? Where is the straw that breaks the back of the camel? And then understand that the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Uh, Treasury are both committed to finding the fuck out. Okay, they are going to fuck around and find out, but they're not going to suffer. They're going to fuck around, and we're going to find out. And what I mean is, imagine you're doing the thing with the straw on the camel's back, and you can keep putting straw on the camel's back for a long time. The camel's really strong. There's a point, though, where if you start putting one piece of straw at a time, there is a point where you've gotten high enough that that little fraction of an ounce is the last bit you can do, and boom, the camel's back breaks and he falls. That's what they're trying to find out. Where is the point at which they can apply enough economic pressure through fucking with interest rates to break the economy? And if you're not convinced right now that it's absolutely being done intentionally, you will be by the time we're done today. Before we do that, let's hear from our sponsors of the day for today's show. Sponsor day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. I don't know about you, but I am freaking sick and tired of big tech deciding what I can do with my data, where my data is, whether I can access it or not, spying on everything that I do. I like Start9 because they let me do things. Like I set up my own groups for text messaging, and we have end-to-end military-grade encrypted texting that not only is encrypted beyond the ability of anybody to take the time and resources to decrypt it, if, you don't, if you're not invited to the group, you can't even see it. You don't even know it's there. And there's a lot of other great things that we can run on Start9 where we take away the concept of cloud computing, and we tell you what it really is. Cloud computing is nothing but you're using somebody else's computer. That's all, which means they control your data, your access. You could manage your own passwords, your own files, everything, be accessible from anywhere in the world. And if you know how to use a smartphone, if you're capable of using a smartphone, you can use Start9 Embassy servers. You can also run a Bitcoin node, a Lightning node, and a lot of other cool things. Please check out Start9. Do yourself the favor. Next up, since we're talking about staying out from under the thumb, of big tech today. Let's talk about above phone. Now, I love above phone, and I've really been in love with them ever since I had Romero Romani on the show with me. I'm still waiting for mine because I wanted the biggest, largest storage capacity one, and they're having trouble sourcing that particular model. I may go ha- have to go ahead and accept his offer to send me one with a little less storage, except unlike an iPhone or whatever, you can actually expand your data capacity in the phone anyway with, with a card. Uh, but it basically takes completely back your control of your communications on your mobile device. No more being tracked everywhere you go by your provider. No more having everything that you do tracked. And an open ecosystem of apps that are run in a way that actually put the customer forward and first like it belongs. Check it out today at AbovePhone.com. And if there are particular apps that you need to run for whatever reason, and those are apps that are not available through the above phone marketplace or F-Droid or whatever, what you can actually do is create this little prison, right, that those, only those apps run in that place in the conventional space, so you have that maximum flexibility. So, for instance, if there were a mapping application that you wanted to use, something like Waze, and there wasn't an equivalent that actually, like, rats out the cops where they have speed traps and stuff, 
Uh, you could do that in this little sequestered environment, but only turn it on when you want to use it. It gives you maximum flexibility, maximum freedom uh, from oversight and big tech, maximum freedom from censorship. You want to check this out, AbovePhone.com. Remember, we have big discounts on Above Phone and Start9 for members of the MSB. 9% off Start9 and $75 off any device at Above Phone. Okay, with that, let's talk about why you might need to save some money here. Um, again, I want to talk a little bit about this, this concept that I came up with for today's show. But most of the show is really going to harken back to 11 years ago when I did a little video that I have linked in the notes I'll bring up, bring it up here just for a second. You can see Jack Spiracle 11 years ago, fatter and younger. And I'm in front of a board there, and I'm explaining something called downward class migration. And we're going to talk about that a lot today because what we're seeing today is the absolute result that I described 11 years ago. If you've never seen that video or just listened to it, I think if you go back and listen to it today, it will dumbfound and shock you at the level of accuracy in it. And I can tell you at the time, there was nobody saying what I was saying the way that I was saying pieces and parts. But what they really weren't explaining is the fact that this idea of falling out of the middle class was actually incorrect. It wasn't, you know, Bill falling out of the middle class to the lower middle class from upper to lower or something like that. It was the class structure actually sliding behind people to where even if your life slightly got better as far as income, and opportunity and credit score, you are still going down in class. And so we're going to talk about that a lot today. I've got an analogy for you that I think will really help you. But I want to again talk about the fact that this is very analogous to when somebody says it's not the heat, it's the humidity. So people say, well, it's not really the price, it's the interest rate. Or it's not really the interest rate, it's the price. It doesn't matter. It does, does it matter why you can't afford groceries? Or does it matter that you can't afford groceries? Here's something I got going on right now. I just helped my son through this. We have a Toyota pickup that we put on a two-year lease, and I literally went in and wrote a check for the full two years of the lease. It's not due back until October. Uh, I think when you did the math on it, even though I wrote a single check, it came out to I was paying a little under $280 a month to drive this pretty nice Toyota pickup, right? So we call up the guy, I've, I've dealt, and this guy's not a bullshitter. He's not somebody I have to explain myself to. He's been beaten up by Jack Spierko a few times already. He knows when I say I'm going to make a deal, I'm going to make a deal. He's the perfect guy to deal with at a car dealership because this will be my, this is my fourth deal I've done with the guy. Um, and he, so he's completely point blank. He goes, yeah, the purchase on that truck is like $28,000. Uh, if you just give it back to us, we'll give you a check for almost $2,000. Or you can roll that into another lease, or you can roll that into a purchase. Give me all my options. Now, think about this. I, I have been dealing with this dealership for more than a decade. My credit is great. I'm in my 50s. My wife's credit is great. Our income is great. Our income has done nothing but go up over the years. He comes back to me. It's almost $600 on a six-year note because of the interest rates that they can offer us if we buy it. Um, there was a solution to this I'll give you in just a second. So if you're just sitting there going, extend the lease. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do to buy some time. Um, he said, you know, I really don't have anything to put you in for much less than that in a new lease. Uh, and he suggested maybe we consider, one, bring your own financing. Go see what your bank will do. I'll get to that in a second. Or you can extend the lease for up to a year. 
same price. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to extend the lease and, and figure out what we're going to do as, as, as we go forward. Because I could be wrong about how imminent everything is I'm going to talk about today. There could be some sort of major rate pivot, but I, I don't see it. But, yeah, whatever, you know. It's, it's cheap to drive a new vehicle. We only have one payment. My car's paid for. I wrote a check for that. And uh, so we go to our bank. Now, we've been with this same, and it's a little bit better terms, not much. We've been with this bank since the 90s, okay? We, my, Dorothy and I have had our accounts together with this bank since the 90s. We've been through three buyouts with them, three name changes. They see our deposits. They know we have money. We have a large savings account in their bank. It hasn't been whittled away. They see all our cash flow. Yeah, we'll approve your loan. Five years, about the same money. So I'm going to spend five years with a $500 a month loan on a $28,000 truck that's already two years old. No, thank you. And we're going to do the lease extension. Okay. I, I didn't tell you guys that so that you could feel bad for me. And I'm not doing that, doing today's show because this just occurred. I've been watching this happen. I'm telling you that so instead of worrying about me, you can empathize with somebody who's working their ass off. that's built up reasonable credit, maybe not what a 50-year-old dude is. It's like 28 to 32 years old. And they're at a point where their car lease is coming to an end or they need to buy a new car for whatever reason. And they have an income that's half of mine. How the hell are they supposed to do this? How the hell are they supposed to do this? And then realize none of this had to happen. This was all orchestrated. We're basically in something I've used as an analogy for other things before, an antlion trap. Anybody here in the, the comments section, you know what an antlion is. An antlion is a little bug. It lives in this dirt. It likes really loose, soft dirt, like sandy dirt. And it makes a cone. And it sits in the bottom of the cone and it sticks its little little jaws out where you can barely see them. They kind of remind you, except they're not long. They're like a short version of the thing in the Wrath of Khan Star Trek movie. They put in the guy's ear to control their brain. They look like some kind of space age, like infesting parasite creature. And an ant. Yeah, doodlebug. There you go. That's what they're called. It's a common name for them. Leslie has the doodlebug. And so the ant goes into this cone. And the ant starts struggling. And the harder the ant struggles, these steep banks are about 60 degrees in the super soft sand. And remember, this is a giant hole to a little ant. It's like you in a car that's not equipped for it trying to climb you know, a, a, a slush bank of cold slush or something. The tires start spinning. And if you hammer it, it spins even faster. And to make it worse, if the ant starts making progress, this little bastard doodlebug at the bottom, he starts spitting sand at the ant. And eventually the ant falls down in the hole. The jaws grab the ant and boom, under the ground, the ant goes. I couldn't give you a better analogy for our economic situation right now than that. We are in an ant lion trap for the majority of people. And ants get out, but most of them don't. And the ones that get out, whether it's just luck or, or, or some sort of ant intelligence, they do things a little bit differently. They kind of go up the side instead of straight up, and they go really fast, but they go on an angle. That's how the ones get out. How do I notice? Because when I was a sick little kid in Florida, my buddies and I, when we would get bored, we'd get a bunch of ants in a jar and throw them into ant lions and see how, which ones got out. But you're going to have to use um, a different approach to getting out. 
or never go in the trap. For most people, if you haven't been practicing the type of lifestyle design that I've been talking about for years, then you're already in the trap and you got to figure out how to get out if you can. So this all goes back again to this concept of downward class migration. And please understand, if you get nothing else out of what I say today, when I say downward class migration, I mean the entire class moving down and what it means to be in that class, not people moving from one to the other. So moving from one to the other is, you know, uh, JD here is making a comment on the side. I've got his comment up right now. Loses his job, has to take a job for less money, goes from upper middle class to middle class or lower middle class. That's falling in the classes. What I'm talking about is JD over the last 10 years, let's say he's had his income increase 3% per annual. He hasn't had big raises. Maybe he had one big raise in there somewhere. But overall, he's making more money than he was. He's paid all his bills. He's maintained his employment history really well. He looks great on paper to a lender. But he can't buy what he could buy five years ago. And he can't get access to money that he could have gotten access to five years ago, even though nothing negative has occurred in his life. Because if that's the case, it's not about J.D., is it? It's about everybody like him, which is tens of millions of people that are just like him across the whole country. And then if it's not J.D., maybe it's Eka Mouse. And Eka Mouse is here now, and she's in a different spot, but there's tens of millions of people like her. So that the entire meaning of middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class, even wealthy or affluent slides. The only people untouched are the elites, the 0.9%, 0.9% at the top. That's why they're the ones that are behind it. So with that, we have to start off with, well, what do we have to pay for? What do we need? We need food. Our survival needs, right? We need food, water, shelter, energy, security, health, and sanitation. And most of those are taken care of either with daily cash flow or debt. So let's go through them real quick. Food. Most people, I mean, if you're, when you start putting your food on a credit card, you got real problems. And le- like, unless it's some stopgap measure that you know your end game, you're coming to an end game and it looks ugly. When you go to the grocery store and you start buying groceries with credit, you got a problem. And if you're doing it, you're doing it with short-term debt. Unless somebody's pulling like a home equity loan or something for living expenses for a year, you're doing it with short-term credit card debt. So that's more of a cash flow thing. Water, this is one thing. Our country is such an advanced nation, we don't really worry about water. Almost the poorest person in the world can turn their faucet on, water comes out. Even the water bill's not so much they can't afford to drink. So water we got. Shelter. So we're either paying for it with kind of daily, monthly cash flow in the form of rent, or if we're buyers, we're paying for it with long-term mortgage. So credit access becomes imperative. Not only that, but landlords, believe it or not, have bills to pay too. So if you adversely affect my ability to buy a home and be an owner – You're also adversely affecting the ability of my ability to buy a home, service the debt, and rent it to somebody affordably. So both sides are hit hard by this interest rate and inflation combination. 
energy. Energy, by and large, we pay for with, you know, monthly, weekly, daily cash flow. You pay your electric bill. Again, if you start paying your electric bill with a Visa card, you're very close to being homeless or at least, you know, abandoning your home and finding some place you can rent with a buddy or something and, and pretty much having destroyed your credit rating. Health and sanitation, well, that's primarily health insurance for people today. That's where the major costs are. And security is paid for with tax dollars for most people in the form of law enforcement. Well, tell me out of that, how much of that's actually discretionary spending? I can eat ground chuck instead of ribeye and exercise some discretion within my food budget. But once I've cut the food budget, I got to eat and I got to feed my kids. Water, not really relevant to this discussion. Shelter is not discretionary. That's why people always thought mortgage-backed securities were such great investments. They, you know, we would even say, who doesn't pay their mortgage? Well, people that can't. That's who. Energy? I mean, you can do whatever you can to cut your electric bill, but if you don't pay it, they turn it off. And health insurance, most people simply can't afford to be without. They have no idea how to be without it. Or they're without it, and when they do have a medical emergency, it destroys them. So you can see that all of this idea, all this idea, that simply by raising interest rates, they could slow down the economy in its current state and create a, a, a soft recession was the goal, the stated goal. Just to cap inflation and we'll turn it back on is ridiculous. Because what people are struggling to pay right now isn't so they can go to a concert or what have you or take two vacations instead of one a year. They're struggling to pay for these needs, and this is important. And these are how... We define what I termed all the way back 11 years ago when I did this video. It's almost 12 years ago. It was January of 2011 I did this video. Let me, I'm not going to play it because the audio in it's kind of crappy, but uh, I'll, I'll just run it as like some B-roll for those who uh, can't hear me. Can you guys hear me now? All right. I had, that, I had that other window muted. I don't know why you guys heard the volume from it. That doesn't make any sense. So, Let's go back to it. How we define our lifestyle quotient is based on one would be our living conditions, our house and or apartment. Okay, but we do not judge this just based on, you know, what light fixtures I have or how fancy my place is. There's a lot that goes into it. Like, is my home big enough for myself and or my family? So pure square footage, number of rooms, et cetera, right? We, we judge how, how good our life is to a degree based on how we live. We also care about the condition. Like if you have a really rundown house you can't afford to fix, even if it meets a lot of other needs for you, you might not be very happy about it. If you can't acquire money to repair it, not only do you have this shitty quality of life, but the house itself can go into such disrepair it becomes worthless, and it doesn't matter if you're renting it and you have to rent so cheap that the landlord won't fix it or you own it and you can't afford to fix it. The other thing is your location. I can show you a lot of affordable places to live in Dallas-Fort Worth right now. I really can. I know some of you doubt me. But I can show you, but boy, you do not want to live in these locations. You're taking your life into your hands. And, you know, there's the nice areas and the complete dump areas. But we have to realize there's a lot of shades of gray in between there. And the closer we get to the total, like you're risking your life by living in a place, 
the shittier quality of life is. Education. Education has a lot to do with your quality, your safety, and your condition of that education. So when I say education here, I don't just mean degrees because you know how I feel about that unless they're very specific. I mean, like, what kind of education your kids get? What kind of school they go to if you're not able to homeschool? Well, that has a lot to do with what? The location of your housing. Better location, better school. That requires credit access to get the money. Yeah? How safe is the school that your kids are going to? Where is the school? What is the condition of the school? What is the quality of instruction? When you start looking at college, you're judging these same things for yourself, though it's generally not the case that you have, you know, a college as bad as some of these public schools in the really worst areas. Vehicles. You know, it doesn't mean you have to have a cool, fancy car to feel good about yourself. But if your vehicle is a piece of shit and you're worried every time you get in it, you won't get where you're going. Your quality of life has suffered. There's a big difference in driving a $3,000 beater, a $10,000 beater, or a decent used car, or a brand new, cheapest you can get new car with a warranty. That's all part of the quality of life because it's not just the car itself and do chicks dig you or something in it like some stupid shit you thought was a real thing when you were a teenager. It's I have to do things. Now, credit access plays a big role in this, does it not? The reliability, how much it costs you to maintain the vehicle, how much it costs you to run the vehicle. This is a big impact on us. Our diet and our food. Again, we're about the quality, desirability, whether or not we have to do everything for ourselves. Can we, can we afford to go out to eat once a week? To some people, that's really important. To other people, it's not. Entertainment. With our entertainment, we have the one place that we have discretionary. But if you don't have any luxury or any uh, entertainment in your life beyond, I don't know, watching shit on YouTube, you don't ever take a vacation. You don't ever get to go anywhere. All you do is work, go home, go to sleep, wake up and go back to work. Your lifestyle quotient starts to suffer and your performance starts to suffer. And then everything cascades. Man was not meant to live on bread alone means more than just the bread. It's also about quality of life. And this all again, all of this hinges on credit access for most people. Most people can't just write a check to fix a problem. So let's let's go back to my story for a minute and explain how this is different for different people. One of the things I've always said is that you need to always be saving money. And that people think that they don't want money when there's inflation, have it wrong. That you want a stack of cash when there's inflation and when there, there's these problems. So this is what I'm going to do with the extension on that truck. We'll do it for six months. We know we can do it for six months more. We know how the numbers work and we know it all works out. At the end of that six months or the end of that year, if we do not get presented with some sort of pivot or something and we decide we're not going to keep doing business with Toyota, I'm going to go out and for between ten dollars and $15,000, I'm going to buy a decent used vehicle that will do everything I need. I'll feel safe with my wife driving. I'm going to write a check for it. I'm going to pay no interest on it. And we'll drive it for five years and see what happens then. Now, how many people could do that? How many people could do that? Most people can't. So they got to go beg banks for money. And the, and, and the more it hurts them, because let's be honest, if, if my wife just said, you know what? I know it's stupid, but I want the truck. I want to buy the truck, Jack. We could just throw a bunch of money at the truck and we could make the payment. We could make the same payment for two years and own the truck. 
I just don't think it's worth it. Neither does she. So, we, but we have options. What does the 32 year old do? The, their access to credit has extra, extraordinarily tightened, even though they still make good money. They have good employment history. Their lifestyle quotient is going to shit. And there's so many people in America, they're destroying our way of life. And a lot of that is economically centric. It is very common for 20-somethings and early 30 peoples to blame that generation before them and say, you don't understand. And they whine and they bitch and they piss and they moan. And those of us that are older go, I remember when I was you, shut up, work your ass off, you will figure it out. I'm here to tell you something. Gen Xers and boomers, their situation this time is different. You got to go all the way back to the late 70s and the Carter administration for anything close to what these people are dealing with right now. In some ways it was worse, but in some ways it was better because we were only, you know, less than 10 years off of the gold pegging of the dollar. Now, now we're 52 years divorced from 1971 when everything went to shit. When everything went to shit. Now, when these people say, like, you guys took everything, like, we had a party and it was just great for us, they are delusional. They do not know what the fuck they're talking about. They weren't there doing it when we were doing it. They don't know how tough it was to be a 20-something kid coming up in the mid-90s and working your ass off. They don't understand that. They don't have to, right? Even if they only have half a point, they still have a very strong point right now. My son was raised disciplined on how to save money. And we just had to go out and co-sign to get him a loan on an $18,000 car. Because, and I don't want to do it. I don't like putting that kind of mix into our relationship. Now I have to know that the bill's paid and, and what have you. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. That I had, I didn't really have to do that, but I cared enough about my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandkids that I wasn't willing to watch them spend an extra $200 a month for the same car. Because that's literally the difference that it made. How many kids like, kids, men like him don't have that option? Don't have someone like us that can step in and do it. It's rough. And they did this. And here's what's, here's how we got here. First, we have to understand who, who are we? Like when we break down the classes, who are we? Well, this is where we were when I did that video back in 2011. About 0.9% of society in the developed world is the elite. These are your bankers. These are people that actually print money. Even some of the billionaires aren't really, they're in there economically, but they're not in there structurally. In there, they're, they're just way more successful than rich people. They're super rich people, but they're not really making the decisions and calling the shots until they're pulled into this fold of people. And you're talking about like the Morgans and the Rothschilds and shit like that at this level. You're talking about the George Soroses that are controlling government with money and getting all the money they want from their buddies to do it with. That's point nine. That number's about the same. They're not going anywhere. About 5% of people, people that net worth over a million up to a couple of tens of millions, you know, ten, a million dollar net worth, two million, five million, ten million. These guys, you know, you could look at them and say these people are wealthy. Okay, these people are wealthy. That was about 
that number probably hasn't changed either. The upper middle class in America in 2011 was made up of 40% of the population. The lower middle class, and understand there's a, there's a lot of permeations in middle class. There's a big difference between the bottom of the lower middle class and top of the upper middle class. And there's a big difference at the center of each, et cetera. But the total middle class was 82% of the country was middle class. Right now, I'm going to tell you that 82% of the country is probably on paper still middle class, but they don't live they don't live what middle class meant 10 years ago. And they're not going to anytime soon at that income level. So what you have is your upper middle class person was at the top of the middle class rank is now like, you know, somewhere right just above the line between lower and upper middle class. They've gradients down that far. The people that were kind of in the middle of the upper middle class are now at the top of the lower middle class in lifestyle quotient, not income. It's so important, not income, not credit score. Credit score doesn't mean nothing. Credit rate, how much they charge you for the money is what matters, right? But 82%, and the poor made up about 12%, 12% of the economy. And I have to tell you something. Even today, and I said this 11 years ago, the poor people in the United States live better than people considered middle class in the developing world. We have the infrastructure for this, but they're destroying that too. And I'll tell you, I think one of the reasons they're doing this, they're trying to push everybody into the cities. They want everybody to walk to work. Well, how do you make them walk to work? You make it where they can't afford a car. Why? Because climate change or whatever other bullshit they come up with. These rich elite fucks telling you that you need to walk to work because climate change, they own all coastal property. Everything they own is coastal. All these assholes have all these mansions, steps from the ocean. But supposedly the, the ocean's going to rise and everything's going to be underwater. You know what? Rich people, rich people do not spend money stupidly. Any of these people that say that the oceans are going to rise and swallow us all or what have you, or boiling the oceans, all and they own a mansion on Miami Beach, or the California coast, or any of that shit, you know they're lying. Because if you believe that, you wouldn't do it, and neither would they. But they want this Agenda 2030 shit, and they are trying to financially choke people. They want people eating the bugs, and the grains, and the seed oils, and to live in the pot. You make food un unaffordable, you make housing unaffordable, you make vehicles unaffordable, and what choice does the average person that would never listen to something like you're listening to today, what choice do they end up with? They end up with no choice. You have to actively work your way out of this. You have to actively work your way out of this. G. Ma Merkel says, if you save for an item and pay cash, want it faster, side hustle. To a degree. To a degree. But tell that to the 30-year-old with two kids that's going through the shit my, 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 my son just went through that doesn't have a guy like me to help him out. And he's already working 60 hours a week. Tell him how to side hustle to that. Well, he's trying to get his kids, you know, to sporting events and shit like that and be a good dad and not be gone all the time. And the mom is working, you know, a full schedule as well. Now, I agree. If they really want it, they can. And I kind of wish they would. But most people won't. You're going to have to design your way around it. Save, save cash to buy the thing outright, except people are living paycheck to paycheck. They're two paychecks from poverty, that type of situation. You know, um, 
what's her name? The dumbass uh, VP, not VP, uh, the, the White House press secretary, Jean-Pierre. Pierre Jean-Pierre, she just came out and she was talking about how great Bidenomics were. And in the next breath said that the, there's there's 40 percent of the country that are four hundred dollars away from bankruptcy. You see how ridiculous it is. Don't think they're as dumb as they sound, because then you will leave behind the malevolence in this. They know what they're doing. So what's going on is wages have failed to keep pace with inflation. I'm sure you've heard that before. But they've really failed to keep pace with inflation because they rely on the average person being stupid. If I tell you this year inflation is 12 percent and then next year comes and I tell you it's 3 percent, you say it went down by 9 percent. It did not because the 12 percent from last year didn't go away. It's cumulative. And if you look at the cumulative inflation rate in the most expensive aspects of your life, which is going to be food, transportation, energy, which goes toward transportation to a large degree and housing. It is insane. It is insane what the cumulative inflation rate is. And it was driven largely by ridiculously low interest rates because the interest rates we have right now are not that out of line. If they were about one point lower, they would be historically average. But since we had a decade and almost a decade and a half of ridiculously low rates, the average person today, especially if they're in their 30s, they haven't known it any differently. When I bought my first house, I paid $82,000 for it. The interest rate was like 6.75%. I made $15 an hour. I was a construction superintendent. I worked about 60 hours a week, so I had 20 hours a week of overtime. Never worried about paying our bills with a 6% interest rate. But that same house right now would probably sell for $275,000, and it ain't worth it. Because keeping interest rates down in the 3% rates for so long drove up the cost of housing. When you bring the interest rate back up, the heat and humidity come together, and everybody starts having heat stroke and pass it on the ground. That's what's going right now. See, and this is here. Aaron says, people make excuses. I just saw a lady crying that they couldn't survive on $5,500 a month, but don't want to move away from Boston. Start getting uncomfortable is what I told her. Yes and no. What if their income is in Boston? And what if their income will go down by more than they can save by moving away from Boston? Do you, we need to start having a little bit more empathy for people. You guys know that I'm a hard ass. But trust me, a lot of this stuff that you might have been insulated so far is probably going to affect you sooner or later, too. This whole thing is an implosion. Interest rates, since they were artificially low, have set up a really bad end game. How do you get out of this mess? How do you get out of this mess? Let's think about that house I just told you. It was a three-bedroom house, 1,850 square feet. Postage stamp, a little bit bigger than postage stamp lot in the suburbs. I don't know for a fact that it's selling for 250 or 275 today. Let's say it's even 225. I know that house would sell for 225 today with no doubt, and it would sell quickly for 225. It ain't worth it. It's not worth it. I used to own it. I can tell you it's not worth it. It's in the, in the suburbs of Mansfield, Texas. It's not an expensive area. It really isn't. It's a very diverse neighborhood, all races, all mixes, everything. 
It is decidedly working class. It was the first house I ever bought before I quote unquote made it. So you know what I'm saying when I say this house is not worth that much money today. But on the market it is. If somebody that needs a house will still do it if they can get the loan. What is that house probably worth today? What's it really worth? I'd say $140,000. Okay. How do you fix that? What's the end game look like? The end game looks like a crash of the economy and real estate prices go to shit. What does that do to everybody holding a house and a mortgage? When they lose their job because eventually the Fed gets what it wants and would get a recession and it won't be a soft one. You're going to get a real estate crash. I know it's hard to believe right now, but it was hard to believe in 2007, wasn't it? When this redneck hippie duck farmer went on the air in June of 2008 and said, it's coming, baby, it's coming. Nobody believed me. Nobody believed me. Look what happened. Look what happened. It's going to happen again. And what's the old saying? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. The higher something goes, the bigger the crash. Well, the housing market and the stock market are at highs right now that are kind of death-defying compared to just 10, 15 years ago. While we were doing everything wrong, there's a reckoning coming. We have a society of educated idiots, and we've outsourced the most important things in the lives of Americans to overseas. We do not make things here. We do not produce things here. We even, on some level, produce food in the United States, send it to China to be processed, and bring it back to our shores. You want to talk about something economically unsustainable. And I'm, not, and I'm talking there are some raw food products. We even do it with meat, though, to some degree. The Chinese own Smithfield Pork now the biggest pork producer in America. They've owned it for years. I covered it back when they bought it. And then we have all these people that come out of college and they think that real work is beneath them. Now, I'm trying to say we have to have some empathy, but we also have to realize what we're dealing with. I feel bad for the person working hard. I don't feel bad for the person who's unwilling to take a real job because they want a management position because they have a degree in bitterness studies. And these people, I'm sorry, but they, by and large, have no connection to fucking reality at all. They have no idea what real work looks like. They have no idea that they are actually stupid, and they have been convinced by a system that they bought a piece of paper from that they're smarter than you who works your ass off. Now, there's some people that came out of that system. They do work their ass off, okay? They go out and they get shit done, but most of them don't. But most of them don't. They have, and they have no idea how to do anything. And worse, they have no interest in learning how to do anything. And flatly, their work ethic is dog shit. And they'll say, well, what do I get out of it? I don't know about you, but when I was coming up in the world, what I got out of it was the next step up. I didn't give a shit that no matter how hard I worked, the position I was in would never be that great. It was a stepping stone. That is traditionally what's moved America forward in, in progress economically. That people would walk in, they would take any job. If you can't get a job, you take any job. And you, you work that job, 
you develop a reputation, you develop skill, you develop just the fact that you had a job and you didn't get arrested while you were working and nothing else. You meet people and the more people you meet, you're like, I want to get out of here. And then somebody's like, well, you seem like you work hard. I know a guy. Like the number one way you get a job is not by submitting a resume. If you're working your way up the chain, you you get a connection to somebody. And even if they technically ask for your resume because HR requires it, you're hired. Okay, that job that I had that I talked about, that construction job, I got that job because I had a different construction job and they literally stole me. I got one job after that with a resume that I needed because I was changing careers. Every job I took after that, I had the job before before they had a resume. I knew somebody that knew somebody that talked to somebody that talked to me, and we made a deal, and they're like, yeah, I need your resume for HR. And you give it to HR, and they're like, well, I'm going to go over this. No, you're going to process this paperwork. This is traditionally, and, and they don't teach you this in college. They don't teach you any of this shit. This is how you make progress. They don't know how to do it. But we have an aging population of workers. We have a whole group of young people that are blue-collar killing themselves. We have a small group of educated, you know, kind of university class people, whether it was through university or through on-the-job training, that are kind of in them. But we have, like, I would say 40 percent, 40 to 45 percent of Gen Z up into young millennials have no real skill set and no real work ethic. Now, if you're in that generation and you do, don't be pissed off. I 55 percent is a majority, right? But that 45 percent is a lot, a massive liability going into this. Then we have a whole class of people, and this man's generation all the way across, all the way across. My sister's trying to join this group right now. Her husband already has. This is the permanently disabled that aren't disabled. They could do something. When I worked at Lockheed as a contractor, there was a guy in a wheelchair, showed up for work every day. He could use his hands but not his arms. He moved his wheelchair with his mouth. He had a job. We have people today that get on disability for anything they can. They get a couple thousand dollars a month and they check out. They're no longer contributing to society as a whole. And we can't make anything. We can't build anything. And we can't even get a lot of the raw materials without going to a country we're trying to start a fucking war with in China. And we have no plan to stop doing that. All while all this other shit's going on. And we have people, the majority of people honestly believe if we elect the right person, they'll fix it. The people that elected the assholes doing it right now thinks they'll fix it if they keep them in office. That's the half of the people that'll vote for Brandon, right? He's made everything worse, but you think if you keep him, eventually he'll fix it. And then you got the right that thinks if we get our guys in, they'll fix it. Well, both sides fucked it up. This has been screwed up for 30 years. Actually, it's been screwed up for 50 plus years. You go back to depegging from gold. That's where this current version of it really all started. But I'm going to tell you, you can go back to about Bush the first, and you can go Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. And all kinds of mixes with the House and the Senate, and they fucked it up. So there's no hope coming because your particular party gets elected. And the fact that people believe it will makes the whole problem worse because they refuse to focus on the actual problems that we're talking about today. Administrators have fucked everything up. Go look in any place where the cost of it has gone up exponentially and the quality of it has gone down, and you'll see something common. 
That is the weight of administrators across the rest of the organization has increased exponentially to like a thousand, two thousand, in some cases, three thousand percent. Medical industry, doctors versus administrators. Doctors have gone up about a hundred percent in total doctors, okay, since 1971. About a hundred, they've about doubled the number of doctors that exist. Population, right, has also doubled. So basically, it kept pace with. There's a 4,400 percent increase in medical administrators since 1970. 4,400%. Education in primary and secondary, sure. But at the collegiate level, it's even worse. Any place. Building codes, administrators, like if you look in construction companies and what it takes to actually build a building today. Administrative growth, it outpaces like project managers, engineers, architects, guys swinging hammers, By thousands of percentiles. All these people do nothing that's necessary. We didn't have them in 1971, and buildings weren't falling down on our heads. Educations were better than they are. So you have all these people that have been educated by this system designed to create Bonhoeffer-level stupidity that think they're important and necessary, and we've built a system that if they actually were sent to go do something else, they can't do anything else. And the economy is going to completely collapse because now they're all unemployed. This is the ant lion trap I'm talking about. Regulatory capture is another one of our problems. Then we're not going to fix. The Republicans won't fix it. The Democrats won't fix it. The only politician, and some of you said he's not a politician because he's never held office. He's running for office. That makes him a politician. The only politician who even uses the word regulatory capture is, is Bobby Kennedy Jr. And he ain't getting elected. And he's, he's just basically a 90s Democrat for all it's worth, guys. Those of you that think he's like the second coming or a new hero or something, ain't going to fix it. But he's the only guy that will even use the words regulatory capture. None of these other people are going to get rid of regulatory. Regulatory capture is where you set up an organization, like let's say the Food and Drug Administration, And you say, American people shouldn't pay for this. These billionaires that run the food and drug companies should pay for their own regulation. Sounds great. Until they're like, all right, no problem. Here you go. Here's all the money you need. We'll fund all the university studies. And you bitches, we own you now. You, can't, you cannot fix the structural expense of food and drugs when the food and drug companies that profit from your misery control the regulatory apparatus that doesn't just protect them from the very regulations they're supposed to be funding, it protects them from competition. You want to see prices drop on steak? Make it really fucking easy for me to open Jack's freaking meat processing and slaughterhouse facility. Make it inexpensive. Don't get the federal government involved. Put some level of oversight in to make sure that I'm not like stuffing maggots into turkeys or something. And let me do it. And you know how many people around me would, if they could easily get it processed without all the bullshit and easily sell the product, would have, you know, three or four cows? A lot. A lot. An absolute lot. But no. We've, we've created a system that basically only works for people that are somewhat affluent, like myself. I can't buy steak, burger, et cetera, from the guy down the road in pieces, parts, 
and save any money. I can't even buy it from that way. He doesn't even want to do business that way. I have to buy at least a half beef. Well, you're in for five, six, seven hundred bucks, depending on the size of the cow, plus processing fees. Does it save money? Absolutely, it saves money. Absolutely, it saves money. But if you don't have the money to buy the thing to save the money, it doesn't matter. Growing a cow on grass is an incredibly cheap operation. You can make a lot of money doing it if you can move the product on the other. And instead, we've centralized everything. And we've convinced people it's necessary. And we've done it largely through regulatory capture. Actual problems were solved. And then those problems became problems. Instead of the problem being a solution, the problem is the problem. Here's what I mean. Look at meat and meat cutting and stuff. Back in the early 1900s, before we had all this great stuff like, you know, refrigeration and flash freezing everywhere, the meat cutting industry was a mess. And people were buying food that they really shouldn't eat. And to be fair to government, which, you know, I never want to do, they got involved and they created a system that cleaned the meat industry, the meat packing, cutting, and shipping industry up, and people stopped buying food that would kill them. They did it right before, because once everybody got refrigeration, reefer cars for the train systems and freezers and shit, you think they want to sell rotted meat? No, 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 nobody wanted to do it. It was the only way it could be done. They put these trains and they went from Dallas to Kansas City to Chicago. They became your three main distribution hubs. It's hot out part of the year. You got to move the meat around. Nasty meat. Well, they moved all of the main operations to Chicago because there's some guys up there, you know, to control things. So this will be central distribution. They created unions. They wrapped the whole thing together. They own and control everything now. They don't want to let go of any power. And now a shit ton of the meat we produce in America goes to Europe. And a lot of the meat we buy in America comes from Brazil and Australia. And it's reality. It doesn't make any sense in a world with real money and real constraints on this kind of lunacy. But it makes perfect sense in our world because the money, the meat from America commands more money in Europe than it would in America. Even with the shipping. And the meat sold in America from Australia commands more money in America than it does in Australia. Even with the shipping. I know it doesn't make any sense. But it does. It does from a standpoint of this artificial economy based on fake money. It also makes sense from a standpoint that there's a lot less people in Australia than there are in the United States. And you can grow a lot of beef in Australia. Same with Brazil. You can grow a lot of beef relative to your population, so you have a surplus. And then Europeans are just willing to pay a premium for American meat. By the way, it's about the only thing they're willing to pay a premium on is our meat, especially our grass-fed meat. There's, do you know how much food you cannot buy in Europe that you can buy in the United States or that's differently packaged? Check it out. Go look up some of the biggest brands in America, Lay's Potato Chips or Doritos or some shit like that. Look at the ingredients on our bag of Doritos. Go look up what you would buy if you bought a bag of Doritos, says Doritos on it in France or England, and look at the disparity in the ingredients. This is all part of regulatory capture. So we have not just a society that's going broke, they're going sick and broke. And I believe this is planned as well. When you have, here's another example. We have a company in our economy today called Davita, D-A-V-I-T-A. You can go look them up. Davita has one major business as far as cash flow. They make equipment 
and have dia- and, and they build centers for dialysis. So people in kidney failure, end-stage kidney failure, without that, they are bankrupt. Yeah? They have a partnership with the American Diabetes Association. The two of them publish a recipe book that has recipes for diabetics in it that are high in sugar. That's natural sugar. Like that matters to a diabetic. Without regulatory capture, this cannot happen. Without fake money, this cannot happen. How do you think they built all of those dialysis clinics? A combination of cheap money, both for the equipment and the clinics, and grants from the government. Your tax dollars paid for your dialysis clinic that you need dialysis at because you're eating food that they said was good for you to eat. How, how do you not have a society go broke? How do you have a society not go bankrupt if you destroy its health while you destroy its economic system simultaneously? Yeah. Is it the heat or the humidity? I don't know. Once it's hot enough, it doesn't really fucking matter anymore, does it? Just saying. Um, we also have had supply squeezes due to money printing, creating an artificial supply and demand curve. I took economics, like economics 101, in like either my freshman or sophomore year of high school. And I learned about a supply and a demand curve. And the more supply there was relative to demand, the lower the price would go. And the more demand there was relative to supply, the, the higher the price would go. And it seems to make perfect sense until you create an artificial supply and demand curve. You make the money that you're borrowing to pay for the thing so cheap that a person was like, this is exactly what happened in the housing market. person looks and goes, I think I can afford about a $150,000 house. This is you know, 15, 20 years ago. Plenty of them out there. And there was a formula you could do in your head that was largely true in most markets based on standard interest rates, a standard down payment, like a 3% down FHA loan, property taxes, insurance, everything all in. It was 1%. $150,000 house, $1,500 payment. And it was largely true. It might end up being 14, 1350, 1601, depending on where you are in certain variances. But it was pretty much 1%. That's how much a payment was. So they start cutting these interest rates. Average person doesn't know it. They're selling a house. They're going to their next house. They're like, holy shit, I, I didn't know I could get that much for my house. Well, I can buy a more expensive house now by rolling equity. The real estate agent says, whoa, 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 you need to talk to my mortgage broker. Because interest rates when you bought this house were 6.15% and they're 3.15% now. And you go, what does that mean? They go, the 1% formula is out. And this person that thought they could buy a $150,000 to $200,000 house goes, I can afford a $300,000 house. So what do buyers of real estate do? They all settle and get the best house they can for what they can afford. Well, the problem was, instead, you, the person in their head was buying twice the house they thought they could afford. But they were, even at the beginning of this, they were only buying like one and a half times. Because everybody started raising their prices as this was artificially creating a false supply and demand curve and taking it across everything. Because even the things you don't pay with for credit are manufactured and delivered with credit. Walmart doesn't make its payroll directly out of store receipts. That's end of the year accounting shit. All these corporations are running payroll on revolving lines of credit. All these manufacturing facilities are paying for inventory before it goes out the door on revolving lines of credit. 
as you increase the credit cost to all of these manufacturing distribution facilities, you increase the final delivery cost and therefore the final delivery price. I'm telling you, there's no way we get out of this without a complete fucking crash. It's coming. It has to. It could be next year. It could be the following year. I don't know when. I don't claim to know when. I know that. And I know it's not five years. Okay, so if you're thinking, well, maybe it could be five. I got five. No, you do not. And it's bad, and it's going to be worse. Now, there could be some opportunities in it. There is some opportunities always in these cycles. If you're sitting on cash and they realize how bad they fucked up, sometimes they start plummeting interest rates. And you can act in that moment if you have credit and cash. If, if, it's a big fucking if. How well have you designed your life? That has a lot to do with how big your if is. The more you design your life intentionally, the smaller your if gets. The less intention, the bigger your if becomes. I remember an old saying when I was a kid, I would say, but if this or with that, my dad, my uncle, my teacher, whatever, would say, you know, if is the biggest two-letter word in the English language. But we can shift our ifs to smaller with active design. The problem is many people have put themselves in positions where it's, it's kind of late on that. We're currently experiencing something called dis, disinflation. Disinflation. Not deflation. Not inflation. Disinflation. It's being held up as a victory by the Brandon administration. It's Bidenomics in action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First year Biden was here, you know, like it was really fast. It was up like 11, 12 percent inflation. Real inflation was more like 16. But it was all Trump's fault. Thanks to Bidenomics, we only have 3% inflation. Like I said, inflation is cumulative across time. So 3% and 12%, right? That's 15%. But it's really closer to 16% because interest compounds. It doesn't matter if it's on a debt, a return of investment, or inflation. Interest compounds. So the 3% is on top of the 13% from the prior year, which is on top of the 8% before that. And all of this inflation, and in many areas of the economy, inflation is way beyond the official number. And it's some of the most critical areas. They have a weird fucked up formula where they claim housing is part of the inflation CPI. It's bullshit. It's disconnected. It's not. I can't explain it to you today. Just trust me that it is. It's it's ridiculous that they even try to claim that housing is really part of the CPI because it's not. And then we are having this massive wealth transfer of real estate. It does not cost BlackRock what it costs you to buy a house. And they've been buying real estate sight unseen. BlackRock, Vanguard, all of them. Not just Black- and BlackRock gets all of the, the front page press. They've been, especially in areas with lots of people, major metropolitan areas, decent neighborhoods, whatever. They've bought tons of houses, I don't see. They've bid up the price. They're part of the aggravation. But we're getting into a place where one of the things that really was a source of building wealth in America was the ownership of property. And it's not just that less and less people can ever afford to buy their first house. We're getting more and more people that can't afford to keep their house, and they're moving into rentals. And again, this 
90% of what I've talked about today, I talked about first 11 years ago, about the only thing that I got wrong all the way back then. About the only thing I got wrong back then is I attributed way too much of this to incompetence. I've always said, you know, never attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. I'm sorry, these people aren't this stupid. This is a designed destruction. This is a controlled demolition of the United States economy. This is intentional. There's a lot of these elites that really believe we need to suffer in America. We have it too good. And they believe that about Europe, too. The whole Western developed world needs to suffer for the sins against the undeveloped world. They don't believe in this climate change emergency nonsense, but they sure will use it to get whatever they want out of it. They believe in this 2030 agenda. They believe that you're too stupid to make your own decisions for yourself. They want these 15-minute cities. They want people to feel I have no choice. They want to create a migration in tighter, and they want to push people out of the, 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 the anything outside the Beltway suburbs. They want to push people in. And even many of the people in what I call the Beltway suburbs, they want to push them in. You know, even the Orange Man, what did he say? We need to build 10 new, big, beautiful, great U.S. megacities. What? Yeah, Donald Trump, that was one, that's one of his plans he rolled out during this campaign. He wants to build 10 new giant cities in America. We have cities rotting to shit everywhere. Let's build 10 more. Don't believe the division among the elites is as big as you have been led to believe. It's not. They're all on the same page. They're all on the same plan. All this shit, I'm telling you, I can go back early 2000s, late 90s, when I quote-unquote made it, when I finally got into sales, I started really building a career. I got involved in, like, the Technology Business Council at the Richland Chamber of Richmond, uh, Richardson Chamber of Commerce because that's where, like, Erickson was headquartered. Some of the uh, Alcatel was headquartered. Lucent was headquartered for Texas there. Like some of the biggest tech industry in the world were headquartered in Richardson and Plano. And, and by the way, the Erickson complex that I designed the distribution of their network for is a hotel now. To tell you how that boom and bust went. But I was in these chamber meetings and they would bring these people in. And what they were describing is exactly what I am right now. High density, urban, this is going to save the planet. That's more than 20 years ago. They were pushing it already. And they were pushing it at the local level through Chamber of Commerce. This is all just playing out what we've been leading up to for 50 years. This is all a plan. But that's what I got wrong. 11 years ago, I was much more like these people are economically illiterate. I'm a more educated person than I was 11 years ago. I hope you are. I hope anybody is more educated than they were 11 years ago. You stop learning, you might as well get in the box. Quick. I know too much now to assign it to incompetence. So what are you going to do about it? What do we do about it? Well, we've had some good suggestions here. Side hustles, working harder, saving money, paying cash, negotiating. Those are all things we can do. We really need to build these parallel economies we keep talking about. You know, we need to like a lot of things that we're, we're told we can't do. We need to just do. And I want you to think about a lot of the people that you see get busted for, you know, food regulations and shit like that. Like these Amish farmers or whatever. It's always people that are advertising. It's always people that are advertising and seeking business in the open market. It's never the person that's like, hey, you know what? Raise a cow for me and I'll get Josh to butcher it. 
And you're like, okay. And it's just between me and you and the fence post and Josh, the renegade butcher. Josh got his custom butcher operation shut down. But you know why? Because vegans hated him and he was advertising on Facebook. I guarantee you, if I lived down where Josh was, then I talked to his neighbor who raised cows and say, hey, can you butcher this for me? If he wanted to do it, he could do it. He wouldn't get shut down. How many places are there like that, that we can just start doing business with each other, not ask for permission? Right now, if we can create defensive layers, whether it's private membership associations, herd shares and things like that, you know, you go there and learn. You're paying to be educated. All you're really doing is fucking off and drinking a beer while the guy butchers your cow, whatever it is. And get it beyond just cows, okay? Get it beyond just cows. It's just an example. We need to start building parallel economies because the economy that we have is going to collapse. It's going to get crushed. It's not going to go away forever. Don't take this wrong. This is not patriots to come and collapse. This isn't all the cities burn and we all have to live in a hole in the ground and fight the Belgians who are going to gas us. That bullshit from James Lowe. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But the fourth turning. And hopefully, historically, the fourth turning always comes with really bad war. Because that could light a whole new level of this. And it seems like our leaders are intent on having some sort of a nuclear exchange with Russia right now. And it's absolutely for nothing. And those of you that get upset when I talk about that war and you believe it's Russian disinformation, you know what else was Russian disinformation? Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. You're listening to the same people. The same people who told you Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation from Putin are the ones telling you that the war going badly for Ukraine is Russian disinformation. Learn a little bit of history about the area. Maybe you'll stop. You'll stop believing the real disinformation. The biggest source of disinformation in the world today is a combination of the United States and the British government. And it has been for decades, by the way. We're the masters of propaganda. Every time I hear... My government claims some other government is a source of disinformation. I don't even care when they're right. All governments do disinformation. There's nobody who has done more propaganda on their own people and the rest of the world than the United States. And, and, and the United States and Britain together get the all-time Academy Emmy freaking Oscar Lifetime Achievement Award for it. And we call people in other countries that prosecute wars or whatever murderers as though... Every president in my adult lifetime wouldn't qualify as a murderer on that def definition. We are the biggest source of disinformation in the world. So don't believe anything that they're telling you. If you do right now, I don't even know how you listen to me anymore. I really don't. Develop your hard skills. When I was a kid, every adult I knew how to do, knew how to do everything. Maybe not perfect, but you needed some drywall up. I'll put some drywall up. Fuck it, I ain't got no drywall. I'll put paneling up. I'm my grandfather with nothing but a pocket knife and a screwdriver fixing a carburetor on a boat in the middle of the Susquehanna River one time. Figured it out. Didn't have a choice. Otherwise, I was going to have to grab the boat and swim to the shore, and we were hell and gone from where the, we put the boat in, and it was upriver from there. Fixed the motor because he figured it out. He actually didn't even know exactly what to do he was able to troubleshoot it and figure out what he could do what he could do and gamer time i have your question mark anybody else that has a question for me 
First one I've seen come through with a question in all caps followed by the question. I'll try to do a few at the end. Um, we can also make our properties and lifestyle productive. I won't say much on that because I've taught it for years. But yesterday I did a show on what if you don't want a homestead, then maybe you learn how to make your property productive in other ways. You get a larger property, you can forage, you can hunt, you can fish, etc. Or your lifestyle can be productive. You know, my, my buddy David, who I'm always talking about, his wife and he have an agreement with all of their hobbies. Hobbies have to pay for themselves. He loves fish like I do. He's turned his whole pool into a pond. And every year he'll sell a few koi for 300 bucks a piece to yuppies on Craigslist. Or a goldfish that's you know big enough you could eat it. It's an Asian heirloom carp for $50. It pays for all the food. That, I'm not saying to do that. I'm saying you have to start evaluating the way that you spend your time and say, how do I turn this, if it's not an income source, into a net uh, even? How do I create my own enjoyment, my own luxury, my own entertainment, and make it pay for itself? If you're not going to do somewhere something's got to give. Right? Because we can't live work, eat, work, eat, work, eat. We have to have hobbies. We have to have things to keep our, ourselves sane. But we need to figure out how do we turn something we honestly love to do into two, three, four hundred dollars a month in, in money? We can. One way or another, whether it's homesteading, hunting and fishing in a way that's actually profitable, whether it's, you know, teaching people how to do something for a little bit of money here and there, this pocket cash type money, fence post money. One way or another, we need to make our lives more productive. We have to. Buy smart and work systems hard. You know, I did a show recently on cutting your own meat. That's an example. Yes, it costs a lot more money to go out and buy a whole shoulder clod or a, a beef chuck roll than it does to buy a couple pieces of meat this week at the store. But if you do it and you do the work, it can be profitable. I was thinking, what if I was broke? What if I didn't have TSP? What if I was just barely getting by and I had my weekends? I bet you I could market without going mass market and getting shut down, right, to all my neighbors and say, I process cuts from meat. Here's a package. This is what a chuck roll package looks like. This is what a beef, um, a, 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 a chuck roll package looks like. And this is what, you know, X, like I can come up with five packages, take weekly orders. I pick the meat up. I package it and deliver it to you. Would I be able to retire on that? No, but I bet you I would eat free for the rest of my life and still put money in my pocket. Should you do that? I don't know. It has an inherent level of risk. But kind of first time you get caught doing something like that, if they if they even decide to come after you, it's more like, stop it. Okay. And then you go back to all your people you have by that point and go, we have to do this. No more average. No more, you know, just you and me. Just you and me now, right? You own a little internal book of business. And if you're smart, you're not going to grow that big doing something like that anyway. Right. You're talking about pocket money. So once you have like, you know, let's say a couple dozen customers and, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a, a customer and they're good for 60 days or something like that. You're kind of like I got a book of business. You're done. And you're just friends and you happen to do this thing for them. Right. I mean, that's just one idea. 
There's hundreds of ways to do this, but we have to start doing it more. Buy smart, work systems hard. I know some of you don't want to hear this. Buy Bitcoin and hold it. Even if it pisses you off to admit I was right about it, I won't say anything else about it. But it is, it is evident where this is going. If the dollar is destroyed, there has to be a safe haven to run to. And it's gold, it's silver, and it's Bitcoin, and it's stuff that's durable. That's all you got. So make some piece of it Bitcoin. I won't say any more. And overall, you have to drive down the cost side of your life. And instead of trying to just think about increasing the income side, what I want you to start thinking about is how do I increase my lifestyle quotient? How do I increase my quality of life? What do I love? And how do I turn love things into some small income like we were just talking about? If you really hate something, even if you really hate something, you might do it short term, but it shouldn't be part of your long term plan. Like if, if I were broke right now, one of the things I would do tomorrow since I have a vehicle is like DoorDash and Grubhub. I would hate it. I have to tell you, at like 18, I probably would have had fun doing it, right? Set your own hours, pick the ones that are worth doing, drive around, fuck off, listen to music, whatever, books on tape. So a lot of things are situational. Like I probably would have, I would have definitely done something like that, one of those like prepackaged side hustles when I was 18. In my early 20s, I would have done it. Because I would have been like, I could do this for a couple hours and still go to the bar, and I could pay for my bar and keep my other money go chase girls and whatever and what happened. Like, that's what I would have done today. I would hate that. So I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But maybe you need to, to get past a certain level. Do you know there's a site called Rover? Do you know what Rover's for? Dog sitting and cat sitting and shit like that. So there's literally people, they set up a profile and you just like go to this guy's house every day and take his dog for a shit. I don't think you can make as much money doing that as Grubhub, but you might prefer that. Maybe you love dogs. Maybe you, yeah, Food Forest Farm says, you know, smoke weed and listen to tunes. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, he does DoorDash type stuff. And he does what I just said, too, though. He's out and about anyway. It pops up on his phone. I'm not going to make much money on that one. I don't want that one. Oh, look, at this is a good one. This one's going to take me 25 minutes and it's going to make me 30 bucks. Boop. I'll take that one. Doesn't get a good one. Doesn't take any of them. It all depends on what you want to do. He also says in his coffee business, yes, uh, Rover into client, private clients is our new play. So that's another thing. A lot of these platforms like that that you can get started with, eventually you can just take your clients private. There's a, and once you start to build a book of business, you can expand into other books of business. I don't I could do a whole show just on taking a small business, developing a customer base, leveraging the customer base. What else can I provide to the same customer? I, I don't really want to go into that because we're at like an hour and 20 minutes. So I need to wrap up. Let me take a couple questions here. If you have any more questions, question in all caps. I've got three things I've started here. Gamer Time says, would stamps be a useful hedge against the CBDC in a barter type setup at least? So stamps, no. I don't see how that's going to help you at all. 
So there are these things called forever stamps, and they're basically an inflation protection in the, the, the U.S. post office. I guess that's what he's asking about. And you can buy these stamps today, and you, they are basically to mail a letter. And so instead of having a price on them, they're a first-class stamp. And if you hold them for 10 years and the cost of mail an envelope goes up, 30 cents, you can still use them. I, I, I don't see how that would protect you from a CBDC. If you mean something else, dude, ask me because I just started because I saw a question. I really don't understand how that would help or what you're asking. Um, Foraging Freedom says, have you found there is an increase in viewership on YouTube or do you, you to due to your use of AI thumbnails? I don't really think so. I, I don't think it hurts anything for sure. Maybe it's a small increase, uh, but I'll tell you the flat out reality of my YouTube channel. I am throttled. I hear from people all the time. I never see anything you publish. I have to individually check for stuff, things like that. Uh, I have tons of people that say they've clicked the little bell to get notifications. They don't get a notification when I'm live. So um, I will not judge my success based on YouTube metrics. I don't think ever. I won't do it. I think it's too much work at this point, but I would probably be much better off if I started a completely new YouTube channel and just stopped putting content up here. And just pushed everybody over. Maybe did a video on this channel once a day and said, hey, I'm not really here anymore. Go over there. Uh, but I don't really want to give that up. T River Rat said, Jack, even if you don't want to butcher, cook large cuts of meats and then drive, dive up portions for later, I don't bother butchering front quarters of deer altogether. They make beautiful roasts. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can save money. And that was just one that I saw my name in all caps. So I did it. Uh, I do see one more question. This one from Dennis. What can I do to get more views on my YouTube channel? Well, don't get throttled back in shadow band like me. I want to make some extra income with all my thousands of videos. You know, I'm going to advise you guys. I know I'm a content creator and all, but my content is used to sell my own products primarily. I really caution people against developing content creation businesses that are dependent upon the distribution platform for the content itself. Um, if I was a ma I'm probably not the guy to ask to build a YouTube channel. If I was that good at it, I'd have a hell of a lot more than 60,000 subscribers on mine. You know, I, I get more downloads from an episode than four times my total subscriber number, let alone views on YouTube. I'm not the guy for that. I'm going to wrap up, guys. I want to just explain to you, though, like why I did today's show. It's because I really believe that it is time for you to, like, triple down on your efforts to protect yourself and think about your future. Things are not going to really get much better anytime soon. There's there's this, you know, when things pick up, when things turn around attitude that in a lot of times it's a good attitude to have. But this is a macro problem. And so things may get better for you, but as a whole, they're going to get worse long time before they get better. And the problem with that is, is a lot of people can lure themselves into a belief, but yeah, it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to me. I'd like to believe it doesn't apply to me. But every single person out there that's a member of my discount program, for instance, is dependent upon income to stay a member of my discount program. And sure, the membership pays for itself, but if you're not using it, then it doesn't do that anymore. So a large downturn in the economy can hurt a show that's about preparing for a large downturn in the economy. Like, nobody's immune to this. 
So make sure you're thinking about how you can do more for yourself at all times. If you want to help my show in the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that, of course, is when you are going to spend your money online, start at tspaz.com. It's really simple. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And you can find my items of the day there, and all of my reviews are all products I own, I use, and I'd use it again, I'd buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. Today's item of the day are the Fisker's 7-inch take-apart shears. This is a great way to uh, to do more with your money in the kitchen. I use mine all the time. I used to recommend a brand called Red Yeti Wear. They stopped making them, so I defaulted back to these. The reason I brought them around sale on uh, today is because they're on sale. And uh, times like these, you need to save money. And if you've been waiting to make an investment in your kitchen gear in this particular area, this would be a good time to do it. They're 20% off today. If you buy the ones with the gray handles versus the orange handles, I don't really think you should make a decision on kitchen shears based on the handle color. I don't think it's that important. I will tell you the one thing I do like about the orange handled ones, if I'm using them for like when I used to process quail or something and I'm using them outside, I set shit down. I lose shit. I can only see out of one eye. Orange is easier to see than gray. That's about the only, if you're using them in the kitchen, if you lose them in the kitchen, you'll find them sooner or later anyway. Uh, with that, I am ready to wrap up. I hope you guys uh, took a lot out of today's show. In the show notes, uh, on the audio side, where there's a link down in the video there that you can get over to the audio side once it's published. It'll be about 30 minutes from now if you're watching it live. Um, there is a link to the video that I did in January of 2012. I really encourage you to go watch it because anybody can say the shit that I said today. This is about a 20 minute video. Anybody can look at this with hindsight. Anybody can. Who's willing to be honest about it and not try to tell you, oh, it's all going to get better. It'll all go away. It's fine. Trump's going to fix it. Biden 2.0s. Gavin Newsom's coming. Ron DeSantis. Whatever, right? Anybody that's willing to be honest about this, anybody that's willing to be honest about this today can look back and say, here's what happened and here's where we are. In that video, I outlined this. With even to me astonishing accuracy, when I made that video, I'm like, I'm really putting myself out here. I'm really putting myself out here. You know, bold, specific predictions and a complete technical explanation of all the things that have happened before they happened. I don't say that to brag. I told you so. No, no. This is what I'm this is why I'm telling you this now. If I could see that coming all the way back then. No degree in economics, no college, redneck hippie duck farmer. Then it had to be obvious. Meaning the people that have been holding power all these years knew full well what they were doing. And knew full well what the consequences would be of their actions. There is no other way a basically uneducated redneck could tell you with that level of specificity. Specificity, right? That specifically. There's no way I could have done that if it wasn't actually patently obvious. And this is where we are now. But remember. You still control your life more than any other person. There are ways through this. There's no way to avoid this. 
But there's ways to go through it, and there's ways to profit from it. Some of the greatest fortunes that exist in the world today were built in the middle of the Great Depressions and other depressions of the late 1800s and early 1900s. People don't realize that. There was significant, there was a depression right before the turn of the century, and there was a depression right after the turn of the century, and then there was the Great Depression. And there were fortunes built in all of them, all of them. Because when there is crisis, there is opportunity, and I think we're heading into a time of unlimited crisis, which for those who are paying attention, ready to act, is unlimited opportunity. With that, I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Revolution is you.